and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of uh, Remnant Podcast, uh, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, come to the Dispatch.com for all good things. You know the spiel by now, and I want to get right to it. Uh, today's episode, though, is sponsored by uh, Harry's and Ancestry.com. More about them in a little bit. So, um, we have a guest that we've been trying to get on here for a little while now, and uh, but our conflicting schedules because we're both we're really peers, you know, we're equals in the, on the media landscape and such, and so both of our schedules were quite busy. Um, I am talking, of course, about uh, John Dickerson of CBS News, former host of Face the Nation, currently on assignment, I believe, with sixty Minutes, and also uh, a can- special campaign correspondent. You can give me the real title, um, and the author of a really great, interesting new book, uh, The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. John Dickerson, welcome to The Remnant. Thank you, Joe. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. Um, and I think you adequately captured really the whole me, the full me in that introduction. I, I think so. I mean, what was it they used to, uh, that Don Hewitt used to call the anchors over there, the, the voice of God, right? <laughs> and that was what, what Cronkite was. And, uh, that was always, I mean, we're not going to get into media criticism stuff, but I got to say, I always hated the Cronkite sign-off as an example of media hubris, right? And that's was, the way it is? And that's the way it is. Not, that's the stuff we think is important, not like, uh, here's the stuff we think you should know, or that's the best we could fit into the show, but <laughs> that is the ontological, metaphysical, God's view of truth and existence as we know it as of the moment. And I always, it always bothered me, but anyway. Um, Cronkite, wonderful man. I'm not trying to disparage him. I know they activate your pain chip if you speak ill of Walter <laughs> Cronkite at CBS. So... Um, before we get deep into the book, uh, we are recording this on a Tuesday. This will probably air on Thursday. Um, uh, we are just at the beginning, you know, that feeling you get when you're going up a roller coaster and you're like, you just hit that moment of, oh, I regret my decision. Um, we're, we're sort of at that in the confirmation Ruth Bader Ginsburg craziness. Oh, I um, thought you meant in life. Oh, there's that too. There's just, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, what, uh, how do you see the, uh, the political scene as of this very moment? I don't, you know, when, when, uh, we got the, when the news came in, it came through Friday night, I felt like when I was reading about the California fires, uh, or all the fires out West and the fires were burning so hot. And then suddenly there were fire tornadoes being, uh, birthed out of the wind and the conflagration. And it's sort of, you know, the fires weren't bad enough. You then had fires and then fire tornadoes. And it felt like when you go back and look at the worst parts of our politics, you can just name the Supreme court nominees for Thomas Kavanaugh. They, and that, that, that was when we used to have to look back for moments that were really ugly and contentious. Now we're in a permanent state of ugly and contentious. And, and on top of that, we're loading uh, a Supreme Court fight, and we're loading it with 40 some odd days before the election. So my first thought was, oh boy, we didn't need one more thing. And, and not just one more thing to add to the madness, but one more thing that exacerbates all the, re- all the reasons we have the current madness. You know, 
that nothing means anything. The hypocrisy is, there's now this posture some people have taken who sort of hypocrisy doesn't matter. And I thought I had the bullish position on hypocrisy, which is sometimes it's really useful, like mm -hmm. this, as I talk about in the book, and sometimes lying is useful for people, for leaders, but obviously everything in moderation. And so anyway, just that, that this was, would exacerbate the overall uh, difficult situation we're in, but also then each of the underlying attributes that make that situation unpleasant. So where are we now? That's all my fears of Friday night are all kind of feel like they're coming forward. Um, and, you know, but then we get into a larger question, which is um, we're being put through this, our paces here, all of us who in, who are engaged in public life, and maybe there are some actually good parts of that, parts of it. I mean, you've, as you've written so much, and as I try to do in the book, you go back to first principles. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to have character? Why is hypocrisy sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing? Why, if you are a member of the world's greatest deliberative body, is it maybe not possible to completely change your position on something? Um, because the underlying structure of argument is based at least at some level on agreeing to terms. And if you can't agree on any term at all, then it's madness. Um, and what does that mean? Maybe you're being, maybe one's being too Pollyannish about, uh, about the ne necessary um, position shifting and changing that happens in politics, or we're really at a dire pass. But these are exciting, the most fundamental questions of politics, and that's probably not, I mean, that's not a bad thing, even if, it, even if it's a pretty ugly situation that creates it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, sure, as a spectator, you know, I mean, I still, in my heart of hearts, dream of the parallel universe where President Mitch Daniels is eating a bowl of soup alone at the resolute desk and people find that to be an outrageous sign of disrespect you know i mean that's that's the, the amount of passion that i want in our politics right now sure. um but i do think and you know and just listeners will know this but uh, you know david french and adam white and i and Ilya summon and a handful of others we kind of had this idea of how to like improve upon the moment which was to have you know, a deal that I love that idea. Yeah. It, it's gone nowhere and it's, it's dead. I mean, it's long dead. Now. I mean, it's by the time this airs, people will look back and say, remember that time when those idiots proposed blah, 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 blah. Weren't they naive? But, um, I just think that I take I mean, I, I'm a big defender of hypocrisy. I think that you can only be a hypocrite if you have ideals. Right. And if you don't have, I mean, like a, if you're a glutton, and you say gluttony is bad, then you're a hypocrite. But you're still right that gluttony is bad, right? Right, right. And the thing that I worry about is that in about 18 months, if Joe Biden wins and they take back the Senate, the Republicans will have established the principle so that so long as it's in your constitutional power to do something, there is no argument against doing it that stands, stands up to scrutiny. And that is a really dumb thing for Republicans to concede going forward. And that's why I think we're going to get court packing or could get court packing and all that kind of stuff. Right. No, I mean, and I think it's a version of your argument that I actually quote in the book, which is what ground are you going to stand on? Um, you know, after you've traded away all the ground you used to own, uh, for evaluating Democrats. Um, and, uh, no, I mean, I was kind of looking for a silver lining. Um, I mean, I do, <laughs> I do, you know, I mean, I think hypocrisy and lying 
we can talk about the instances in which they make some sense. Um, um, you know, but, but, but it's like saying, you know, um, uh, you know, one drink while you're operating the chainsaw, uh, is not a great thing, but it might limber up your back and keep you from hurting yourself uh, because, <laughs> you, you know, you happen to operate the chainsaw that way. Hooking yourself to an intravenous gin drip while you're juggling, uh, running chainsaws, that we can all agree is a bad idea. So it's right. obviously the, the amount of hypocrisy and the amount of lying are, are what's at issue here. And, and, the, and, 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 and misunderstanding the distinction between the two is, is, a, is one of our problems. Because what happens is if somebody's been a tiny bit hypocritical, that's the hole through which their opponents drive a Mack truck. Because they say, right. well, where everybody's hypocritical, there's no variation. But, you know, uh, so we're all hypocrites and deal with it. And obviously that's that way lies madness. All right. So since you brought up the book, which is your your duty under the guild contract of book authors, and uh, you do have my um, my sympathies. I have so many friends who have come out with books during the pandemic, and um, it's just not ideal uh, <laughs> time to, to, to or, or even really the Trump presidency. It's just amazing how, you know, with the exception of maybe Comey, if you come out with a book or Woodward, right, it, it kind of gets memory hold very, the shelf life is just so, so, so short with all of the craziness going on. But I do think that your book will hold up over time because it's, just, it's, it's an important book and it's a good book. So let's talk about the book. Um, and let's sort of, let's start with sort of where we've set things up. Part of your advice is people should be more like Ben Franklin. What do you mean by that? Well, I think what I mean by that is it's both, but, but people should be more like that and it wouldn't be bad if politicians were that way too. And that's essentially having a little bit more perspective about, um, about what's possible, about um, what's, what happens in a, you know, so basically I quote from Franklin's comments at the end of the Constitutional Convention um, that were read by James Wilson because because Franklin was too frail to be able to read them himself. And he basically says, I'm not sure I agree with this Constitution thing. There's a lot in it to recommend it, but there's a lot in it I don't quite like, um, including just having one president. You know, he wanted to have a little committee. Right. Um, but he said basically, and this part I didn't get in the book, but it's wonderful, is he basically said, you know, in my long life, I've realized all these things I was passionate about. Sometimes I was wrong. Um, and he quotes this French woman who's who um, about religion, who says, you know, um, who, who, who marvels or wonders why everybody um, she's not doctrinaire. She just wonders why everybody is always wrong. Um, <laughs> and and so he basically says, you know, for a group of men and of course it was men at the time um, to be able to get together and come up with anything is itself a marvel. And what they've created is pretty darn good. And my history suggests my life history, he said, suggests pretty much this might work out and I better be a little humble about how certain I am that it's going to be a failure because humility is what wisdom has brought me. So I just think general humility um, and also restraint. One of the things Franklin writes about in his autobiography is that he used to be a total jerk and basically was a hot take Twitter jockey before they existed. And he yeah. would jump down the throat of anybody he argued with about how wrong they were. And ultimately, weaned himself by his own account anyway to not be such a jerk because his friends basically came to him and said you're a jerk about your total you know absolute denial of what everybody else says so recognizing some humility in your own positions recognizing um just giving a little bit more 
of give and take um, in conversation and public discussions allows for, um, I think, more productive outcomes. Um, and it's what the Senate is supposed to be, that you recognize you're going to be debating with this person tomorrow. So you might not want to call them Hitler today because you might be on the same side with them tomorrow. And by the way, calling somebody Hitler doesn't get you to a solution in, a, in, a, in an arrangement where you have to agree by unanimous consent just to turn the lights on. Right. Um, so anyway, that's a super long answer to just, I, I guess what I mean is practicing good democratic hygiene, which means not assuming the worst motives of the people you're debating with. Um, so, and I guess I, we kind of skipped ahead um, by me asking the Franklin question, but um, let's start with my favorite question to get on a book tour and that um, is too rarely asked. And uh, it's just simply, what's your book about? Yeah, I thought you were going to do the, why did you write this book? No, I hate um, that question. <laughs> so what the book is about is, um, although I, I'm going to answer it, I'm going to answer the second question, even though you asked the first. What the book is about is about the gap between the presidency as we debate it and talk about it in campaigns and the thing that really exists and that a president has to deal with. And I lived in this gap, live in this gap, because I spent so much time covering campaigns at the micro level. Um, you know, I was the, the worst of, and maybe still am, those journalists who said, well, this doesn't really matter because how it plays is, and then mm -hmm. you just talked about the theater of it. So that's what, you know, and what, what I've recognized over covering campaigns, which started in 1992 for me, was that this presidency we talk about in campaigns and then going and covering the presidencies themselves, there's this huge gap between the thing we talk about in the campaigns and the real thing. So what if we took the real thing as it, it exists based on interviews I did and all that and tried to pull that into the into the campaign conversation? You know, in the best case, people would be more informed when they make their choices and they would think they would realize the presidency is the job of managing big, high stakes surprises that come out of nowhere. And so maybe we should focus on temperament and virtue and team building and prioritization because you can't learn all that stuff on the job. And if we think about that more, we're picking them, maybe we'd be in a better chance of getting somebody who has the skills to, to handle that stuff. Okay, but let's say we fail at that. That's the most high-minded, best outcome. The other is just if you look at what the job actually is, it's a new frame. I don't like to use the word frame because everybody uses it now, but it's a new sorting technique for information and conversation. Um, and so, for example, one of, the, one of the things journalists love to do is say, well, what are your issue positions? Well, that's fine. It's important to know what your issue positions are. But that's just the starting place. You know, the next question is, do you have any of the skills to get those things passed? Do you have any of the skills in picking the people who would carry those things out? Um, and, you know, uh, and, and, and what does it mean in the job you have? to hold a certain position. So example, for example, like is, is this a job in which you make pronouncements and stuff happens? Or as Adam White knows, is it a job where through the administrative state and regulations, either increasing them or decreasing them, you can get a lot of the things you wanna get done, uh, done. And we don't talk about that really in presidential campaigns. So it's an attempt to get that conversation to, to happen in the right place where we're doing the job interview for the job so that people at least have a um, kind of a, a better, basis upon which to make their judgments and those of us who cover it, cover it less as theater, or if we're going to cover it as theater, at least we have some idea, um, kind of the play is a little bit closer to the reality. 
Yeah, no, it's funny. You have that line, you have that quote in there from Elaine Kmark, where she says, you know, the thing is everybody, you know, the president gets in there and, and I think she's probably exaggerating, but she says something like 95% of the job is foreign policy. It's probably not that high. I mean, at least not every day, but, um, but it's much more foreign policy than you would get any suggestion in um, almost any campaign debate, any campaign commercial. It's all, you know, sort of Tip O'Neill politics is local or at least domestic for the campaign. And then they get in the job and they're supposed to know about foreign policy. And um, I think it's a good illustration of the, of the larger point. Um, so why don't we talk about it for a second? Where do you come down on, um, I mean, I know the answer to this, but I'm pretending. Uh, wh where do you come down on the question of whether or not the presidency is too big a job now. I mean, you do say it's the hardest job in the world. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I can think of some worse jobs, but hardest sure. maybe. Okay. Um, yeah, on the Elaine Kmart point, as you know, George Bush and Al Gore have this big debate or big campaign. They have three debates. The word terrorism comes up once and it's a passing tone. It just scoots by. But yeah. the next two administrations are focused entirely on terrorism. And so that, to me, is a same thing with Woodrow Wilson. He gets elected. He says, you know, it'd be crazy if after spending all this time talking about um, that's not really what he said. But, you know, it'd be crazy if spending all this time talking about domestic issues. And then I'd have to deal with a foreign policy, you know, crisis, which he obviously did with the First World War. I think the pre yeah. So the presidency is overloaded. Um, and the question is where and why. And, and what's fascinating about Donald Trump, you talked about the the problems or challenges of writing about the presidency with when Donald Trump is president, because he's such a big figure and such a shiny ball of energy and activity that it's hard to like get around him to the other side and say, hey, there's this enormous institution behind him that's really interesting. We should look at. And, and his pull is just so Donald Trump doesn't do a lot of the stuff that we'd expect traditional presidents to do. And maybe that's a good thing. Mitch Daniels, who you mentioned, your fantasy president. Um, basically when I interviewed him for the book said, you know, it'd be great if the next president said, I'm going to do three things. That's all I can focus on. I love all of you out there and all the other things you care about are great. And you, you're going to get to know my, you know, spouse or my secretary of state and, or my vice president, and they're going to handle a lot of those things. I can handle three things. Here they are. And this is what I'm going to spend all my time on. Donald Trump has done a little of that. Um, he has done it, you know, uh, it's not clear that they are the one, two, and three of national priorities. Um, uh, he, I, he for is, one, will not sit here as you denigrate Space Force like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, Jonah's long dream of the Space Force is finally being realized, and the world <laughs> is coming into line with his thinking. Um, so, um, so uh, you know, another way the presidency is overloaded is the way we all in the press bring our expectations to the job that are crazy. You know, I spend some time writing about the overestimation of the power of presidential rhetoric. Um, and uh, we kind of lump again, because we come at it from the campaign world, we, we, we think that presidents can speak and change the course of events. Um, sometimes they can be amazing. And, and, you know, particularly in the elegiac and pastoral roles, uh, they can be presidential words can be quite meaningful. But other times presidents can jabber on and on and on and only make the situation worse. Um, and so when we measure them, as I used to, if you give a speech and it doesn't change everybody's mind, it's kind of crazy to think that it ever would. And so that's part of the expectations problem with the job. 
that overloads it. And then, of course, you have con- so you have Congress taking a much more supine role in the in in government and governing that has made the job overwhelming. So I think we've added to the job, we've diminished the tools, and we've taken away the partners that a president can work with. All of which makes it uh, much harder. And but I mean, also isn't you know part of the issue that the way I mean, and I'm a broken record on this, and people know where I'm going to go with this very quickly, but. Um, you know, the Constitution is pretty clear. Our understanding of it is all muddied, but the actual text of the Constitution is pretty clear is that Congress is supreme. Congress is this, and our friend of mine, Luke Thompson, is the guy who first persuaded me of this, but the the whole idea of these co-equal branches is actually uh, uh, propaganda that came out of Richard Nixon's legal strategy during Watergate. And um, if you go and look at the Federalist Papers, the word co-equal is in there, but it's almost every time it's used is about uh, co-equal between the House and the Senate, right? Or co-equal between the federal government and the state governments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Congress actually has the power to fire people from other, in the other branches. It writes the tax laws. You know, Founding Fathers had a thing about taxes. Um, it raises taxes. It it declares war. It writes the laws. It creates the executive branch agencies. It creates all of the courts except for the Supreme Court. And it's not doing its freaking job. And so that's how you get, you know, a big chunk of the mission creep is, is and then you add in the, the, the fact that the presidency is telegenic, which, and then you add in the sort of evolutionary psychology, which is that we all want to be ruled by the over ape. Um, and you get this sort of perfect storm that leads to this problem of the imperial presence. That's exactly right. You, you, you are exactly right. And that's why one of the most fun I had was, was looking at uh, FDR's effort to reorganize the presidency and how he was absolutely throttled by Congress who said, no, you don't, you don't have any aides and you may want more aides, but we're not giving them to you. Um, right. and, you're, and how dare you even ask? Or Teddy Roosevelt, who everybody thinks about, you know, as being a a, a tornado in trousers, um, w- w- said to Congress, OK, I'm going to redesign the executive agencies um, using the scientific method. And he did all these studies and said, <laughs> OK, here are the things I'm going to do. And they didn't even respond to him. They then passed a law that basically said no president or they basically had appropriations said you can't spend money on studying how to do things better. That's our job. So, yeah. So now you look at the at the uh, when the majority leader of the Republican uh, conference in um, in the Senate says um, uh, Republican caucus in the Senate says, uh, well, we're just going to wait till what the president tells us what his position is on health care or immigration before we bring any legislation forward. This would have floored um, his predecessors. And. and this is a bunch of different. I mean, when I go into it at some, you know, into some at some length, but we see it playing out well with everything. I mean, and 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 when you shrink the presidency down to who picks the Supreme Court justice, when you basically make the job and have entire constituencies who care about this and nothing else, you you end up picking presidents who basically, you know, pick your team member for the Supreme Court, and they don't need any of the other skills required for the job. Um, so you not only add all the legislative work that was done by previous Congresses into the president's uh, to-do list, but then you make the picking of presidents 
something where you don't need necessarily the attributes to handle all the rest of those new things that have been put on the to-do list because you end up making presidential choices based on who they're going to name to the Supreme Court or who has gives the best speech or who claims to give the best speech or who was, you know, uh, a kind of pretend businessman on a pretend reality show about business. Um, so I totally agree with everything you've said. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the problem we have, and I'm again, a broken record on this too, is that a lot of people think that we're a parliamentary democracy and that you vote for a party and then if your party wins, it gets to do everything that it wants. And the system's not set up to be a parliamentary democracy. And when you have the expectations that you live in one, and, and I don't think people actually understand how actual parliamentary democracies work in the first place, so that's another problem. But we had this idea, you know, you have, during the debates in the primaries, you had, and Republicans are just as guilty of this as, as Democrats are, it's just, you know, there were only Democrats really having a primary. Um, one candidate after another would say, on day one, I'm going to do this. And on day one, I'm going to do that. And even if you give license that it's figurative and they're not actually going to do it on day one, but they're going to do it themselves. Um, half the things that they, two thirds of the things they brought up are not things presidents can do unilaterally. You know, the president can't confiscate everyone's guns or ban fracking unilaterally. I mean, there, right. there are laws that are written for these things. And I think that the press, you know, of course you accepted, uh, uh, that's one of the bigger problems that we get is that just a matter of civics. You don't get a lot of journalists who say, journalists want to get the answer, what are you going to do on day one? They never want to do the follow-up question is, you can't do that on day one. And how can you do that on day one if you don't have the power to do that? And I think that trickles down in a lot of people's perceptions of the presidents. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the benefit you get is by being maximalist in your promise, regardless of whether there's any chance it could ever happen. Um, and so the day one promises are like, and there were so many of them in the Democratic primary, and also um, the magic that was going to be created through the administrative state, which has implicit in it running a presidency the way Donald Trump has. So mm -hmm. in other words, they've argued that he has, through the administrative state, done all these awful things, and that's a terrible perversion of democracy. And yet they were promising to do their own version of it. Um, right. And that's a problem. And the reason it's a problem for anybody who doesn't uh, is that it, A, is brittle lawmaking. So in other words, the president doesn't have all the powers, so they make they do kind of part of it, and that's brittle. But it's particularly brittle because, you know, when it goes through Congress, you have the minority feel like they had a say, and they might actually have some input, which makes more durable lawmaking. But also, they don't feel like they were run roughshod over. And because, as we know, people who feel like they were bulldozed, um, whether it's by the Affordable Care Act or by the Merrick Garland um, denial, when they feel bulldozed, they sometimes choose to uh, act out. And whether that's by, by you know, hiring somebody to be president or senator who is um, much more pugilistic than the system um, can stand, or they take to the streets in ways that are more than just protest. And so we're, we're removing the, the release valve that is created through Congress. And also, you know, when you think about war making, um, you know, the incentives of the president are to act quickly and, and energetically with respect to national security. It's the members of Congress who've been representing the men and women who've been fighting for 18 years. And, you know, they should have a say on some of this stuff too, in the, in the original conception of, of the shared 
duties on national security. But that's a side road. They should um, want to say that's part of the problem is they don't want right. to say, right? They don't want right. the accountability. They want to be like Matt Gates and be, you know, having hot takes. I mean, literally, Matt Gates's podcast is called Hot Takes. And, um, and did you read the Vanity Fair piece? I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to let this die. He says that always do TV because if you're uh, not on TV, you're not making news. And if you're not making news, you're not governing. Right. At which point, you know, James Madison <laughs> corpse bursts into flames. <laughs> right. No, exactly. You could power a small town from the turbine of James Madison spinning. Um, well, it's that 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 quote is basically in the same category as I alone can fix it from mm -hmm. President Trump. And. And I don't, I mean, President Trump is just talking at the end of, a, of an escalation that we've had, sent, you know, and depends where you want to put the needle down on the record player. But um, uh, I mean, that's why one of Ronald Reagan's genius moves was hiring Jim Baker. He knew I alone, he knew he alone couldn't do it. So he needed to hire somebody who knew how to work in Washington to get things through Congress. Um, and so... Uh, so to say I alone can fix it on, you know, and the president said that at, at his at the convention, but he said it in 98 different ways during mm -hmm. the campaign, um, recognizes the office in a way that is completely disconnected from its founding and from reality. Yeah. My, uh, my friend, uh, Steve Hayward, he always likes to say, and I'm, I keep meaning to look up to see how, you know, he does it to sort of be provocative with his students, but he says, Look, the way to pr correctly pronounce the word president is actually president. He is supposed to be presiding the way George Washington was presiding at the Constitutional Convention. Not, you know, now we have this connotation of president of being man of action, right? Because mm -hmm. of Teddy Roosevelt and everybody who came after. But, right. um, you know, it was it was much more hung back. So who, in your estimation, who came closest to figuring out how the presidency is supposed to work? Well, um, I like, you know, I, I fell in love with Eisenhower in writing this book um, mm -hmm. it, for a couple of reasons, because, you know, sexy. I would, I mean, yeah, just a, sure. Really exactly. Sexy just bristling with muscles and um, <laughs> charisma. Um, no, I, you know, when I tried to basically go back to the blueprint of the job, figure out what the founders were trying to do, and then figure out also what are the basic aspects of the job and what attributes are required to do that, and if you could build a perfect president. And, and it got a little absurd. At the end of the book, I list 18 attributes. I didn't even know human beings had 18 attributes. So that's a little crazy, which I make you know light of a little bit, because when I got to the number 18, I thought, oh, and you know, you're just asking too much. But that was One your the, bridge on the River Kwai moment. You're just yeah. like, my God, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> well, also because, I, I mean, what I was trying to do is say, you know, what we do in campaigns is if, if a candidate shows a little bit of a political interest, you know, a little bit of a politi political instinct, I should say, and acts you know, just a little bit political, his opponents will say, oh, well, you know, this guy's only out for himself, totally self-interested, party hack. No, you need, you know, it's like we were saying with lying and hypocrisy. You need a little bit of all of this stuff. Um, you just can't have too much of it. So, but anyway, when I looked at the attributes, Eisenhower had a lot of them. And he also thought about the best ways of doing things. And that was the kind of enterprise the entire book is about, which is if you took this thing down to its studs, um, what, are you, what would you build back? How would you make it? Um, and Eisenhower thought a lot about leadership and what 
kinds of leadership were required and what kinds of instances. He has this great letter that he writes. Um, and also, well, anyway, he writes about Patton and he's like, basically, if I wanted, if I wanted to go into Sicily, Patton's your guy. Like, he's going to go. And, and sometimes you can, you can uh, succeed much more by taking the advantage and moving quickly than by waiting. Um, so go, you know, I want Patton on my side. If I want a leader of men in an organization, Patton's not the person for the job. Right. Recognizing the distinctions between the different kinds of leadership seems to me to be a crucial um, attribute in the job because nobody knows what the presidency is like. And so you need that adaptability. You need to know that it's not just barking out orders. Sometimes it's this gooey, persuasive part of the job and not just publicly, but internally and also with Congress. And so having some sense for when you use honey and when you use salt and when you use vinegar, um, to throw in yet another metaphor I felt was really interesting. Then also Eisenhower has the Eisenhower matrix, which I use throughout the book, which is his idea about prioritization. Don't let the urgent crowd out the important. So obviously a job of being president or any high functioning organizational job, you got everything is urgent. But if you treat everything as urgent, then you never spend time on the important. And if you don't do that, then the stuff that's important, like preparing for a pandemic, or at least having a team in place that could handle a thing like a pandemic never gets tended to. And then it becomes urgent and it's too late to put together a team that can usefully handle that kind of thing. Um, so I kept coming back to the kind of attributes that, that, that Eisenhower had, including also a respect for the dignity of the office. Um, and the idea that how you comport yourself sends signals both to your staff and the country. And that as you talked about the president, um, you know, Washington, basically, in the way that he stood in the front of that room was like a model in sketch class. You know, they were designing right. the office around him. So Eisenhower, I, I already mentioned Reagan being smart enough to choose Baker, also being focused. Uh, my uh, somebody who once worked for Reagan said, basically, you never had to talk to him. You knew he wanted to do three things, cut taxes, regulations and beat the communists like and maybe you could add a fourth, like increase liberty and freedom. But that was it. You didn't need to have a long you know, marching orders conversation with him. Um, he knew where you were trying to go. I think um, uh, George Herbert Walker, Herbert Walker Bush's restraint with the Soviet, with the fall of the Soviet Union or fall of East Berlin, and and I mean, sorry, the uh, the um, Eastern Berlin Europe Wall. and the Berlin Wall. Um, you know, I thought restraint is not something we talk a lot about in the in the presidency. And I, I spent a fair amount of time looking at his capacity for restraint, which is, again, totally antithetical to the way we cover the job. But I think is um, um, I think Barack Obama had a sense of his team and, and his role as orchestrator of that team and a, and a sense of not letting the urgent crowd out the important that I think was um, uh, that was the skill of his. I think George W. Bush, which nobody it says very many nice things about it all. Um, nevertheless, had um, certain things he focused on that were not a part of the day-to-day. -day. One of them was pandemic preparedness, coming back from vacation after reading the book about the 1918 flu and telling Fran Townsend, we need a plan for something like this if it ever happened to us. His PEPFAR, which was you know a long-term vision that he kept hammering even while he was being destroyed by the course of the war and Katrina, that ability to have a vision outside of the madness of the day, I think, is an important thing. So that's a kind I, of actual... I guess also, I mean, I mean, I, we can argue about the actual Iraq war, which obviously had its flaws. <laughs> but um, uh, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, yeah, exactly. You know, but the, his willingness to go through with the surge at yeah. the time 
I think, you know, you can say, I think you can argue quite adequately, you know, or persuasively, at least by most people's lights, that the decision to go to war was wrong and mistaken, but the decision to follow through with the surge was correct because you would have left the place in even much worse shape had you not done it. And that took a lot of political capital and a lot of, you know, uh, risk tolerance that I think, you know, I think history will be kinder to him about the surge than the war. Right. I, I think I think that's right. I also the surge to me has always been really interesting, and the management that Petraeus. We don't need to go down this road, but the but the the, the learning that with that because I'm very interested in how you adapt and whether we allow any of these people, and particularly presidents, any room to adapt on the job. It's a job that requires extraordinary skill of adaptation, and that often means changing your position. I mean, this is why Donald Trump, if you were designing a president, you would give them a lot of Donald Trump's attributes. No fixed ideology, incredible pain threshold, despite the, you know, I mean, there are times where he has no pain threshold, but there are times when he has an extraordinary pain threshold um, and the the total ease with uh, changing positions. Um, Mm -hmm. You could imagine, as I try to in the book, sort of aiming all of that at uh, a, an agenda that um, operates along the lines of the traditional presidency, and it would have been quite it would have been quite interesting. Um, but adaptation interests me, and 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 one thing Brett McGurk says that I that I wish that I look forward to his book um, helping me understand is he said with both watching Obama and Bush um, over the course of time when when a, both Bush with the surge and also Obama with ISIS. That they basically both went in saying, I'm not going to be LBJ picking bombing targets. And then realized you kind of have to be LBJ picking bombing targets. Not that down in the weeds, but then mm-hmm. they went from a position of delegation, which is obviously a key skill and you need to be able to do it, but that they basically realized you have to be right in the thick of this in a much more hands on way than they both thought. And that they both got better at fighting wars once they really got you know, up to their neck in it and were really involved in the decision-making process. But the problem with that is then that means it takes over your entire presidency. And I flick at it at the book and let Brett make the case, but I'll be interested in his longer book, which will show, which will go from Bush to Obama to Trump in terms of, you know, if you're going to fight a war, you really like that's going to consume your presidency in a way that we maybe don't fully understand. Um, and I think the surge comes out of that learning that George W. Bush did that Brett talks about. Yeah. I mean, it, it does seem to me that you can't, at the end of the day, central to the DNA of the presidency is the commander in chief part of it. And it's going to sneak in no matter what. And that reminds me that I really should talk to you about ancestry.com. As many of you know, Eisenhower was, some, had something of an impressive career during World War II. Well, it's been more than 75 years since many courageous soldiers, maybe even your own grandfather, left home to fight for the highest possible purpose. Explore Ancestry's new collection of untold stories from World War II, then find and honor the veterans in your family who served. In honor of the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, Ancestry has just released a U.S. draft card collection from World War II with over 36 million draft cards completed by fighting age men in the United States across the country during that time, whether they ended up serving or not. 
there's a great chance that you could find your relatives in this collection, and it can help you learn more about what their lives were like. Uncover your ancestors' personal details in Ancestry's World War II U.S. Draft Card Collection, which shows details like home addresses, physical descriptions, and more. Discover your untold stories and more. Head to Ancestry.com slash remnant. That's Ancestry.com slash remnant. We thank Ancestry.com for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Uh, I, I should note, uh, just because you're talking about, you know, I, I have, I really do like Eisenhower and my friend Kevin Williamson of National Review, um, I think he calls himself, or at least he used to, an anarcho-capitalist Eisenhowerian um, because of Eisenhower's ability to sort of stay out of people's daily lives, but manage the government well. Um, and, but I have to... Um, because you're probably not a regular listener of this podcast, notify you two things. One, um, I am the, um, at least the vice president of the International Association of Woodrow Wilson Papers. Um, and um, two, I am probably the treasurer of the International Association of Calvin Coolidge Lovers. And yeah. um, one of the things that Calvin Coolidge said was... As part of his central, first of all, he was asked what his major accomplishment was. I love this quote. Yeah. Of his presidency. And he said, minding my own business. Right. Which I think is awesome. And then the other one was, he said, if you see 10 problems rolling down a hill towards you, if you do nothing, nine will go into a ditch before they reach you. Right. Um, I think that there is a lot to be said for that attitude in the presidency, that the president isn't a hyper attentive dad that needs to get involved in everybody's life. I think the beer summit with Barack Obama was dumb. I think Trump's micro nonsense with reality TV stuff is pernicious. Um, I love, I mean, I know the Swiss have a different president, but I love that you do polls of Swiss and large segments of the Swiss population do not know the name of the president. That's the planet I want to live on. Right. Coolidge's secretary wrote that his desire was not to, quote, go ahead of the majestic army of human thought and aspiration blazing new and strange paths, which is the kind of flowery, more flowery version of what, what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, Coolidge knocked off by, you know, sort of noon. Uh, FDR got in there and was, you know, uh, gesticulating until um, everybody else was was uh, well into, into bed. Um, and I think you're. I think you make a good. I think that's. I think that's uh, 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 exactly right about the presidency. Now the problem is you need other. Inst- you need Congress then to pick up the slack. You need all of us to stop turning our heads towards the presidency for solutions. You need um, local governments us, to work. Sure. You, know, you need yeah. local governments to work, and you need our presidential campaigns to stop making the presidency into this super action hero, um, right. which which is all Kennedy's fault. Uh, um, which I say only slightly um, no, facetiously. No, no, right. Norman um, Mailer helped too. I mean, there were a bunch of people who did, who helped with that stuff, and Ted Sorensen, and yeah, yeah, and Don and Don Hewitt, which I love Don Hewitt's quote where he says, um, you know, about the first debate, um, it was great television. I'm not sure how good it was for democracy, or it may have been, yeah. or maybe terrible for democracy. The idea, basically, I think, as I understand it, anyway, is that when you turn it into a show. Um, you encourage, I mean, it's great theater, that's great, but you encourage all the superficiality of the show. Um, and, and then if you run your campaigns that way, when you get into office and you're handed 
uh, as was described in the Bay of Pigs, you know, a hand grenade with with a pin pulled, um, you better make sure you've got some other stuff in your bag other than performance tricks, because you now have to deal with a serious issue. And that's one of the things COVID-19, you know, COVID-19 is pretty much impervious to spin. Um, I mean, you can try and spin the numbers, but people keep getting infected and keep dying. And and people's risk tolerance, which is affected by those numbers, is a real thing. You can't tell them, oh, no, it's okay if they're staying at home and not participating in the economy because they don't want to get COVID. Like, you can't spin them out of their self-interest of their own personal health. And that's one of the things that's different about it than almost anything else um, we have. Um, I mean, we're seeing with the with Lindsey Graham in particular on the Supreme Court, you can say the platonic ideal of a statement that would seem to have no wriggling out of, right? When he said, if the exact same thing happens with a Republican president in an election year, you can, you can quote me, you can check the tape. And then he's just totally um, ignore, not ignoring it. Well, he's just taking the totally opposite position. And that's going to be fine, you know, for him, probably. I don't, you know, I don't think it's going to lose him his Senate race. Maybe it does. But um, COVID doesn't, you can't do that with COVID. Um, and so that's an interesting part of that. Um, uh, anyway, I, that, I, I, I got off track, but yeah, no, no, it's anyway. okay. I, I, I want to go back to the, the Nixon Kennedy thing for just two seconds. First of all, for listeners who don't know the reference, the, at least according to lore, Kennedy won the televised debate, but lost it on radio among people who were listening on radio because Kennedy looked also handsome and pretty shiny pony, the John Edwards of his day. And Richard Nixon had this five o'clock shadow and he would look at his sweaty upper lip. And, you know, with the five o'clock shadow, it does raise the possibility that if only he had access to Harry's shave at the time, he could have actually become president in 1960. One of these days, I am finally going to uh, shave off uh, this uh, creep moss that I have on my face. And I will definitely use Harry's to do it. I love Harry's. Um, Harry's used to be a big sponsor of the Glop podcast and I've had, uh, Harry's products in my house. My wife uses Harry's products. Um, they're great. And, um, you know, I, I, I going back to the late nineties, early 2000, when Mickey Kaus used to talk about, and when he was writing for slate, the international, uh, brotherhood of evil monopolists who controlled like a stranglehold of the razor blade industry. I've been interested in disruptors in this field and Harry's is the best of the crop. Um, so I'm very excited to have Harry's back in the remnant fold. Uh, Harry's just came out with their sharpest blades ever. And unlike some other razor companies, which we'll not name here, they're not charging you more for their product improvements. Harry's new sharper blades are still as low as $2 each you can find harry's new sharper blades in big box drug and grocery stores near you but if you like to shop online or if you want to stay away from the pandemic new u.s customers can redeem a trial offer of harry's new sharper blades by going to harrys.com slash dingo that's harrys.com slash dingo other razor companies have increased their prices when they introduced something new. Harry's is delivering their sharpest shave ever, and they aren't raising prices. These new blades are so sharp that in a study with guys shaving four times a week, 
The guys reported that with Harry's new blades, their eighth shave was as smooth as their first. How did they deliver such quality at such a low price? Harry's owns a German factory, and you know the Germans are never wrong, that's been honing razor blades for 100 years. They source their steel from Sweden, where Viking steel comes from, and own the entire manufacturing process from R&D to the factory floor. This allows them to keep prices low and confidently stand by 100% quality guarantee on harrys.com. Harry's is now available wherever you shop. You can get Harry's sharpest blades ever at all those stores I mentioned before. But you can also get them, and this would be good for us, and therefore good for you, therefore good for the universe by the transitive property, by going to harrys.com slash dingo for the Harry's trial set. You'll get a five-blade razor featuring their new sharper blades, a weighted handle foam shaving gel with aloe, and a travel cover to protect your blade when you're on the go. Just go to harrys.com slash dingo and redeem your trial offer today. We thank Harry's for sponsoring today's episode of Remnant. But no, uh, but seriously, I, I do want to talk to you about Kennedy for a second because um, JFK, if you go back and you look at basically a whole generation of boomer Democrats, they, I mean, Gary Hart, Bill Clinton, John Kerry, you, there are all these quotes about them. I mean, John, John Kerry actually used the initials JFK in like law school because he was so enamored with them. Bill Clinton had that, um, remember that, that, that weird uh, video from the 92 convention with the sort of figurative anointing or passing of the torch from Kennedy to Bill, who was there for a high school trip. Um, there is this whole, you know, the, the way that Kennedy transformed the understanding of the presidency for a bunch of idealistic young liberals was really cannot be exaggerated. And, you know, you've just done this book about the presidency. If you just had to rate him on how he did the job, where would you put him versus the the mythology that we've gotten over the last 50 years? Well, I, I think you'd put him lower than the mythology. The mythology, um, you know, obviously there's going to be, um, because of his assassination, the mythology was going to be huge. Um, I think that the, the pre-assassination, although it's hard to do this, but the inspiration of a generation, um, is real and was real and and he did inspire a whole generation and so that part of what he did now you can argue how much of it was what he actually did in calling a nation to service and how much of that was given an incredible jolt by the the horror of his assassination um and 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 i don't know but but the phenomena is real and so i don't know whether he gets credit in the ranking or not for that um but i do think the teeing up the idea of um a public service as he defined it is uh, is part of the presidential role um again it may be straying you know this is part of the problem with with my attempt to limit where the i mean basically i try to throw out here's what the job is here's all the things we've asked of it and then readers need to pick and choose what to keep and not to keep i think that the inspiration that kennedy um provided was real but if you look at his legislative successes they are um you know he's, he was no lyndon johnson um and and he was kind of not very good at it by all the reading I did. Um, and so so in that 
in that sphere on foreign policy, you know, um, I mean, there are, there are, um, I mean, he gets, he gets spanked in Vienna by Khrushchev. Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis has a much different view, you know, now in terms of his um, success managing that than, than maybe was thought of at the time. Um, so I think, um, so I think he would be lesser in the, in the um, rankings than, um, than, than his vaunted status would suggest. Um, but I don't, but I don't think that what he brought to the presidency is all bad. Um, I think the showmanship, I mean, the reason I was saying earlier that he has changed the modern presidency is that his use of, you know, he argues as I, one of the fun things that I discovered in writing the book was his, his essay in TV guide, where he talks about the tele television as a unique medium uh, to give an uncanny sense of the real inside of a candidate. Well, that like you draw a straight line from that right to Donald Trump. Yeah. In other words, authenticity is everything and authenticity in the moment is everything. Um, well, that's, that's not true in life and it shouldn't be true in a president. Um, and, and so our addiction to the performative presidency begins with, with John Kennedy. Um, and so while on the one hand, I think he should be given points for the power of his inspiration and the power of his theatricality in, in the job, he also unleashed a performative aspect of the presidency that is, that's been one of its biggest problems. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with all of that. I, I just, I think that you could, I mean, what, what amps it up is one, he's attractive and they've figured out this rule of the image and all that kind of stuff <coughs> that you can only get <coughs> from television, right? I mean, he's the first telegenic president. Eisenhower is not a telegenic president. Um, but that process, I would argue, begins basically maybe with Woodrow Wilson, where he's the, I believe he's the guy who throws away the tradition of delivering a written State of the Union address. Um, and I hate the State of the Union. Um, I hate it in every sense of that sentence. Um, and, uh, um, and then FDR with the fireside chats and, you know, the, and his manipulation of imagery, you know, him flying into the convention, um, and, and, and all that, but it's, it seems to me that like the real problem we have with the presidency is that it was sort of, it was an institution that was waiting to be corrupted by mass communication. And the more mass communication you have, the more corrupted it's get. And so that, so that's why Twitter takes it to a whole nother level. Um, and I would much rather that the amount of time that you actually heard or saw the president of the United, I mean, you sort of suggest this in your book is that you should have the vice president do a lot more ceremonial stuff and get it out of, you know, I, I think that the less we hear and see of the president, the better. And that's not an ideological position. I mean, it's not a Republican or Democrat position. I think that's just my position about the presidency itself. Well, I, it's funny because I remember when I covered uh, Newt Gingrich's presidential campaign uh, in which he outlined a presidency that's totally antithetical to the one we have now that it, about which he is so supportive. But one of the things he used to say is you won't see me much because mm -hmm. if you see me all the time, I'm not doing my job and it cheapens the it cheapens what presidential speech should mean. Um, and, you know, what we've got in the 
I mean, we are in a base only presidency and that's been true of his communication innovation. I mean, the beauty of the fireside chat was that it was an explanatory medium that brought that spoke to the entire country. Twitter is never used for explaining anything um, because it doesn't seek to. Um, It doesn't seek to convince. It seeks to basically give everybody. I mean, this is true from the president and everything. Sure, no, it's a a horrible thing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so this president has been extremely um, uh, innovative in his use of Twitter relative to the available tools and techniques of communications, but not for the traditional purposes of, of national communication. I mean, in other words, his Twitter account has never been used to persuade anybody to support his tax bill. Um, when the tax bill came out, it was unpopular and it continues to be the same with building the wall. He hasn't changed national opinion on that. So it's not used as a persuasive medium in terms of the entire nation. It's used as a, as a, a base rallying medium. And it's been pretty darn effective, both with respect to specific legislative achievements and also keeping people in line. I mean, the number of senators who've told me that they just basically don't want to be on the wrong end of a tweet from Donald Trump. Um, is, is there are a lot of them. Um, and, and you see the, um, the power of the environment that the president has shaped within his own party. Um, that is, that has been quite extraordinary, but that's different than the way communications were used for all the previous presidencies, which used it more towards a broader conception of the office. So, so I've been saying for a very long time that Donald Trump is the first president with the possible exception of maybe Andrew Jackson or something uh, to not at least pretend to be the president of everybody. Right. Because I actually think that Barack Obama was much more partisan than his biggest fans suggest. Uh, Certainly lots of liberals think that way about about George W. Bush. But I think even committed partisan critics of either will will at least concede that they pretended to be the president of everybody, that they, and this is one of the places where rhetoric does matter, right? You need to say certain things as the president of everybody. And, you know, George W. Bush, say what you will about him, he didn't win the popular vote. And so he came out of the gates trying to do things to win legitimacy with the people who didn't vote for him. He did No Child Left Behind. He had, you know, he he tried at least rhetorically until 9-11 and then for a little while after 9-11 to be the president of the whole country. You can make a similar case about Barack Obama and people can argue about how sincere all of it was. That's fine. Got nothing like that out of Donald Trump. Donald Trump right. from the beginning, well, I mean, like literally last week, he wanted to only count COVID deaths in red states, right? Um, and, um, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Is there another, was Andrew, I mean, I'm just, just speculating about Andrew. Has there been another president who governed as if it was a base presidency only? Uh, not that I can think of. I mean, again, the crucial distinction you're making is base presidency, both in private and in public. Um, I mean, Richard Nixon, you know, I mean, part of the problem, part of the challenge is that we didn't have such, such clean polarization. You know, the, 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 the coalitions were a little bit more ad hoc. Um, you needed and could get the support of, um, I mean, there's nothing more enjoyable than listening to, to Lyndon Johnson tell Hubert Humphrey to go spend time with Everett Dirksen, um, right. <laughs> you know, when Humphrey's still in the Senate to get civil rights passed is basically, you know, Joseph Califano, uh, who worked for domestic, domestic policy advisor to Lyndon Johnson said, you know, he basically told us we should spend all of our time working and coddling and being nice to Republicans because they were going to help build a coalition. So, you know, some of the presidents had to do it out of force. Um, 
But as you quite rightly point out, and one of the things I tried to stumble through in the book is, um, you know, I went back to the Tip O'Neill Reagan uh, moment of magic that, that everybody, even your baristas at local Starbucks in Washington, refers back to when they talk of the golden age. Um, and there are million, there are lots of reasons why that golden age can't exist anymore, um, including, I mean, basically my favorite is that, you know, um, you had the number of Democrats uh, who were elected in district um, that also voted for Ronald Reagan. You had more than 100 of them. Um, right. When Donald Trump was elected, you only had 16. So there were structural in incentives that got people to work together. So the question is now whether there's any penalty for not trying. But then secondly, is this question, is it the duty in an office that has always had a stewardship function which is, I'm the president of the whole country, and I'm also, as Washington set it up, I'm the steward of an institution that's going to live after I leave. And therefore, I need to, and also I'm, in a way, a steward of, a, of the American system. So I'm not going to always press every maximalist advantage because I realize that I will leave something weaker than I was handed, and that that's part of the job is not to do that. Um, is there any penalty now for running just a base only presidency? And when people talk about wanting to get back to normalcy um, with Joe Biden, it, who is a full uh, participant in the kind of old style, Mitch McConnell writes quite glowingly, I think, of, of Joe Biden in his book, The Long Game, because Biden basically knows you know, how to operate in that old system. He's not mm -hmm. gonna change McConnell ideologically, but he knows what McConnell needs, McConnell knows what Biden needs, and make a deal. like. That's out of favor, but that's also what would make everybody feel like the system was working again. Yeah. Do people want that, and will they get it? And 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 I guess what what I come back to at the end is: is there a is there a requirement to at least get caught trying to do something bipartisan, or is that just basically an old thing nobody cares about anymore, and they just want to use the office to get the maximum gain for their side? Um, and I don't know. I'm not sure what it is, but. Um, uh, but I guess we'll find out in this election if there's any appetite or sufficient appetite in the battleground states that will decide the election for that kind of presidency. Because that's basically what, what Biden's promising, is to go back to at least a time where people pretended to try to do things and maybe in some cases stumbled into actually doing some things that were bipartisan. So uh, that raises, I mean, I know that given your portfolio, this is more fraught for you to try to speculate on. but. Um, Joe Biden, if he wins, uh, there are, I found that at least among a slice of pundit types and uh, political analysts, there's kind of this sub rosa debate. Um, will his presidency look like LBJ's first hundred days? Or his last hundred days, <laughs> and I, I mean, I mean that more broadly in the sense of that is he going to be have this robust agenda where he can get Democrats to do lots of things and it'll really move the ball down the field, or is the left going to really try to eat him alive really, really quickly, and it'll be closer to a hot mess than the sort of you know stacking victory upon victory? I mean, do you have a sense of how he can manage the actual job that you're allowed to actually say past I, you know your CBS minders. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I guess it'll depend on what the House and Senate look like for him. You know, uh, he's not going to have a veto-proof majority in the, uh, um, or a, I should say, filibuster-proof majority in the Senate by any stretch. So, I think, um, you know, the Johnson 
had a lot of things going for him. A, he he was perhaps the most talented legislator to become president. And he yeah. had, you know, he could turn um, a president's program into a martyr's cause, which is to say he had the the power of the assassination behind him to get things moving. And, and still, though, what he was able to do, particularly on civil rights, is kind of amazing in terms of shepherding it through a very complicated set of... Um, uh, relationships and opposition, including from some people who were his friends who were absolutely on the other side of it, um, like Senator Russell. But um, I, so I don't think I don't think Biden can make the kind of any kind of progress, anything close to that. The question for me is whether he chooses to basically govern. For the, what's his first priority? And does he do, as you said, with George W. Bush, who chose um, to take something like No Child Left Behind, which was something you had agreement on both sides, to build a kind of bipartisan record um, that gave him legitimacy and also gave him a win and maybe also, in his view, tried to purchase him some goodwill from the other side. 9-11 got in the way of all that um, uh, or complicated all of that. So does Joe Biden do something like some people thought Donald Trump should have done, which is to start with infrastructure um, Mm. and basically get a bunch of Democrats on your side who want to bring infrastructure projects home to their states, um, you know, and so can be encouraged to do something with you? And then you at least build a rhetorical um, base from which you can say, look, I worked with them on this. They just wouldn't work with me on these other things. It's not that I have an incapacity to work with the other side. It's just they they don't want to work with me. So what does Biden choose to do first? As you said, he's promised to do a thousand things on his first day because that's what's you know, you're you're supposed to do that when you run for president. But what's the first thing he really chooses to do? Because whatever he chooses to do and now I'm getting around to answering your question sets the conditions for the rest of his presidency. What a lot of Democrats will say is, even a conservative Democrat might say this, which is, it's madness to assume you can purchase goodwill with your first act, that we don't live in that world anymore, that the Republicans you seek to work with, um, and the Democrats would have made, made this exact, and the Republicans made this exact case about Democrats on an infrastructure project. So pick whichever party you want, but if Joe Biden comes in, Democrats will say to him, Republicans, I have no interest in working with you. And any Republican who tries is going to get hammered by Fox News. Sean Hannity and Lou Dobbs will be on their front lawn burning them in effigy. And they can, they have no room to maneuver. And that would have been true with Rachel Maddow and any Democrat who wanted to work with Donald Trump. So you're foolish to even try. And you're just going to burn a bunch of time the way Barack Obama did by trying to make a bipartisan deal on health care. And you burn that time and suddenly you're in the midterms and you've screwed up your whole presidency. So it's not an ideological thing with respect to, you know, do I want the Green New Deal or do I want something more modest? It's a question of, can I purchase the kind of bipartisan goodwill you and I were just talking about in the American system anymore? And that I have no idea. I think Biden's inclination is to is to try to work within that old-fashioned American system. Um, and I think that's really in his bones. I think I think that's why he didn't go for defund the police. And I think that's why he didn't go for Green New Deal. I think that's why his problem in 1988 was he had, with the Bork nomination, Ted Kennedy was to his left, causing all kinds of trouble. Biden was trying to run as a guy who wasn't captive of the left. He still right. is. <laughs> so, but I, I, so I don't know. That's his, all I have is like a bunch of sentences. I don't have a final conclusion on which way he would end up going. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there's a there's a bit of misreporting about Biden historically. He was never a centrist Democrat. He was a Democrat at the center of the Democratic Party. 
right? He was always trying to triangulate within the antipodes of the, of the, the, the poles of the Democratic Party in a way that, like, Sam Nunn was a centrist Democrat, right? I mean, he uh-huh. was, you know, and Biden, if the, if, the, if the party moved left, that means the center of gravity of the party moved left and he would go with it. If the party moved right, that meant the center of gravity of the party would move right and he would go with it. But he wasn't, he wasn't trying to figure out what a centrist Democrat was as defined between the Republican and Democratic parties. It was between the left-wing base of the Democratic Party and the right-wing end of the Democratic Party. And that's just, a, it's a slightly different thing, I think. I think that's right. I think, I think, I think that's right. Because if you, if I think back to the Bork nomination, Richard Shelby was still a Democrat back then. Right. You know, he was nowhere near Richard Shelby. Um, and so I think you're right. I think he's, I think you're, well, it's demonstrably true because of where he is now relative to where he was at the beginning of his career. And that, you know, he's, he stayed in the, maybe he stayed in the middle of his party, but the entire party has, has uh, moved over. Although, and you can say that about other, I mean, Mitch McConnell, uh, Mitch McConnell is not the Republican he was when he first came to the Senate. Um, right. So, so I think that's. Uh, I wonder. It's a really interesting question. Who you would say is centrism mostly defined by your position relative to the polls of your own party, or your position relative to a fixed standard? Um, and and perhaps on our next meeting, we can figure out who <laughs> we would put in which category. Because I can yeah. only think of people who've who are in the kind of Biden-McConnell model, who have, who have moved around relative to their party, not sort of stayed still as their party moves. Yeah, um, no, that, and it, it, I mean, I just think that, that it's, a, it's a kind, the kind of centrism that, say, the DLC represented, and the DLC had many, there were many rooms in the mansions of the DLC, but the, the DLC represented this idea of what Clinton was trying to do, is triangulate between the Democrats and the Republicans. Yeah. And I don't think Biden's ever tried to triangulate between Democrats and Republicans. I think he's tried to triangulate between right-wing Democrats and left-wing Democrats, which is why he could get along. It's a very senatorial thing, right? Is you want to be able to make deals with old segregationist guys, and you want to be able to make deals with new left-wing urban liberals. And it's just, a, I think it's a slightly different mindset. It does call to mind, you know, uh, our mutual friend Ramesh Panuru he made this point years ago, and it's always stuck with me, is that one of the points of the conservative movement isn't just to win victories for the Republican Party. It's to move the center of gravity of American politics rightward. And sometimes if you win a lot of victories for the Republican Party, um, you create such a backlash against them that the pendulum actually moves further left. And one of the things I think conservatism has lost sight of is trying to actually make the Democratic Party move rightward and instead is just focused on pushing the Republican Party as far right as it'll go without bringing anybody else along. And that mm-hmm. creates all sorts of dysfunctions. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I, I, it's a, just a tangent of mine, but no, I, no, no. I mean, I, um, well, because what I was thinking about as you were saying that is one of the things I'm, I try to figure out in the book and that you're, and then again, the reason I quote you is where does the fixed standard and what's the benefit of fixed standard? And do we measure ourselves against a fixed standard? You know, I mean, and 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 the Republican Party during the '90s was in the fixed standard business. Yes. Um, I mean, it's not just you know Buckley saying standing athwart history and yelling stop, which suggests you have a fixed standard that you're holding against the tides of history. But 
the Book of Virtues and all of that whole period of time yeah. was yeah. all about immutable standards that are worth the ends do not justify the means. We are the fixed standard party. And so for that, that's gone, except for a few of you who are still trying to argue I me, mean, not just what the standard should be, whether there should be standards at all. Yeah. No, I that's no. gone. Yeah. I mean, no, it's, amazing, I it's, it's an amazing thing for that, for it to, to, to having, having lived it and covered it so often to have it just be gone is a, is quite a, is quite a thing. <laughs> I mean, just in, in the course of human events for it to have disappeared so thoroughly. Um, I mean, except for those who are trying to keep it in the conversation and, and, um, and make the case for it. Uh, um, yes, we members of the Knights Templar in our catacombs in the, off the, off Gibraltar, keeping the flame alive until <laughs> the, the masses are willing to receive them again. You know, I look, I agree. It's very frustrating. Um, and it's very strange to me. Some of the people who have, you know, I, I think one of the things that defines these times is it's not just like this with the Ginsburg thing where you just basically say hypocrisy doesn't matter anymore. Um, it's also this, um, I don't exactly know how to put it anymore. It's, it's, um, it's well, one way of putting it is, is, and I'm partly to blame for this. I wrote a book, my first book, Liberal Fascism, got a lot of grief from a lot of people. I think people misunderstood it. I'd write it differently if I had to write it today. But one of the things I point out was that Saul Alinsky was a bad person. And mm -hmm. I kind of introduced for a lot of people, I wasn't the only one, but I was one of the big ones, to introduce Saul Alinsky as a figurehead of the left to the right. And I was holding him up as a bad guy. And at some point, someone concluded, oh, no, 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 but he was really effective. And okay. there became this thing, which Dinesh D'Souza is a great example of, of Alinsky envy. And they were like, they're so evil, we have to be, we have to ape their tactics for good. And once you start saying they're evil because they fight fire with fire, and therefore we have to match their tactics, but we're good, you kind of lose sight of what you're ultimately fighting for. And, and it used to be the ends justify the means, and then it's just the means justify themselves. And I think that's a lot of what's been going on on the right. Yeah, well, that was the argument that Gandalf made when he refused the one true ring, just just to make it, you know, uh, put it in the for all ages. The lesson um, it's true. Um, the um, so Gandalf references are always welcome here. That's, oh, that's, good. That's all a, right, because yeah. as you were talking, you know, uh, I would seek to do. I would seek to use the ring to do good, um, right. but then it. Uh, but then, of course, it it um, it eats you up. I mean. You know, the, one of the things that I was, ha was, again, trying to figure out here is the pull to do things to win power, which is the necessary precondition to do the stuff you want to do, is incredibly strong. And so it used to be that we believed that some of these standards checked us either internally with our conscience or checked us as a party or checked us as, a, as, as members of the press. And so what are the, where are those checks coming from? And it's very interesting as a parent to try to make some of these cases about um, character. I became, I fell in love with uh, James Q. Wilson's um, notion of character that it requires empathy and self-control. Um, those feel, that feels exactly right with respect to human experience. Um, 
not many people making that case in public anymore um, as a, as a, as a, a way of measuring leaders um, because the entire system encourages you not to have self-control. Um, and if we, you and I are right about the, I don't know whether we were talking about the rise of the base only presidency or whether we just have one in the moment, mm -hmm. but if you're running a base only presidency, there's not a lot of appetite. There's not a lot of advantage. In fact, there's no advantage to empathy. If you use it as James Q. Wilson defines it, which is right. meaningfully taking into account the views of people who are basically not in your political base. Um, so I found, I came to a better understanding of all of that, trying to figure out what happened to standards um, and how we, how, it, how we decide to judge a presidency or any presidency based on a fixed set of measurements. Um, and, uh, and we're in the middle, I guess, of figuring out how that's all gonna play out. Um, so buy gold. <laughs> 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 uh, John Dickerson, I could do this all day. I hope you'll come back at some point. Um, and uh, it's been great to have you here. I'm glad we finally worked this out. Uh, it's called The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Jonah. I'll, I'd love to come back. And, um, and thanks for all your uh, writing over the years, because there's uh, a lot of it's informed. It's either in the book or it's been informed uh, my thinking. So, um, so thanks. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. We'll get you the best doctors. <laughs> All right. So John has left the uh, wherever we are. And um, I thought that was fun. I thought it was interesting. Uh, I do think it's a good book. Um, and I do think that I deserve some credit for showing some restraint in uh, not going off on Woodrow Wilson bashing tangents in today's episode. Um, and uh, and also avoiding some of the classic remnant bingo card uh, cul-de-sacs that I often get myself stuck in. Um, also, it's always fun and interesting when someone from the mainstream media, and, and if, if Dickerson isn't that, I don't know who is, uh, talk about how much he loves Eisenhower and name check people like James Q. Wilson, uh, which is just kind of awesome and uh, certainly doesn't fit the caricature that some people have about the sort of elite or mainstream media. So I thought it was great to have him on and uh, thanks to him for coming on and thanks to him for quoting me in his book. And thanks to all of you for uh, listening today. Uh, please go to the dispatch.com to sign up for 30 day trial, the dispatch.com slash 30 days free. Um, and to become uh, everything that you possibly could be. And with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast, not video. Sure.